Welcome to the Matanzerus Podcast, a baseball podcast. I'm Ryan Medeiros here with Max Tanzer, and we have a ton of stuff to talk about today. We're going to wrap up the World Series with the Los Angeles Dodgers coming up as the winner. We'll be talking about that questionable Blake Snell move by Kevin Cash, along with Justin Turner's questionable move after the game. We'll also be getting into recent managerial hirings with Tony LaRussa and AJ Hinch. And we'll be wrapping it up with some news on some non-tenders, including Brad Hand as the main notable non-tender, heading into free agency. Max, what are your initial thoughts? We'll start off with the World Series. What were your initial thoughts when you heard the Los Angeles Dodgers won the World Series in a, a rockout Adamas for that last out? Yeah, I mean, I I was super happy for the Dodgers. Uh, first championship since 1988, and more most notably, Clayton Kershaw finally gets that World Series ring. An incredible moment for that franchise. Super happy for them. Got the prediction right, Dodgers in six. I was very happy to see that as well. But let's go back to, as you mentioned, this Blake Snell decision from Kevin Cash and the Tampa Bay Rays to pull him after five and a third of an innings work after giving up just one run on two hits and 73 pitches. So I'm a little bit in between on this. I understand the analytical side part of this, but when he was taken out, I was a little bit questionable about it just because he was riding, he was dominant, and this was a different Blake Snell than we saw earlier in the postseason. He was commanding all of his pitches, no walks. This was the 2018 Blake Snell, not the 2019-2020 Blake Snell. Now, on the other side of things, you can look at the American League Championship Series Game 7 with Charlie Morton. Morton had just thrown 66 pitches through five and two-thirds of an inning's work. Two hits, one walk, gave up an infield single. Cash would go to Nick Anderson, who would induce a ground ball out off the bat of Michael Brantley. Now, no one remembers this or really is talking about this, Ryan, just because it worked out. This one didn't work out, so this is the big story in Major League Baseball, or at least was up until the end of the ball game. But if I'm Kevin Cash in that spot, I have to stick with Blake Snell just because he has the capabilities of throwing 90-plus pitches. He did it five times in 11 regular season starts. I'm not saying he was going to go eight or nine shutout innings, but at least let him finish that inning. Then you could start the bullpen off with a clean slate um, and not necessarily go to Nick Anderson, which is a complete other problem. But before we get to Anderson, what were your thoughts just initially on Blake Snell being pulled? Well, initially for me, like you said, uh, with Kevin Cash coming from his mindset, you're not going to really change up the strategy that you use to get yourself to the World Series Game 6 in the potential last game of the season. I think it would have been even more tough on him if he didn't make the change for Snell and Snell ended up blowing the game. I think he wouldn't have been able to sleep with himself after that because he would have been thinking, hey, I, this really stinks that I didn't go with the strategy that I've been going with all year. Like, How do you change that up in the last game of the season? And it really seemed like it was an analytical move, but when you look into the analytics a little bit more, they really didn't even support Cash's own decision. Uh, you look at Blake Snell's stats through the third time through the order, and they, he really does not get hit hard the th third time through the order, like you would have imagined based on Cash's move. Uh, hitters actually throughout the season did not have that much better of a performance, better of a performance against him the third time through the order. So that when you factor that in, it actually makes Cash's decision even more indefensible, in my opinion, just because even the numbers really didn't support it. Now, I understand that he didn't want, even just from a baseball perspective, he said this in the post-game conference, I think it was a little bit more due to that analytics perspective, but he said coming from a baseball perspective that he didn't want those hitters, Bet Seeger and Turner, to see him for a third time because they're good hitters in general. But the fact of the matter is those three hitters 
were 0 for 6 with six strikeouts against him through the first uh, their first six at bats against him in the game. So it wasn't even like they had hit him well, and they really had no uh, no good swings against him throughout the game. So I really don't buy that comment by Cash after the game. I think it really has to go more towards the numbers, and that he must have had these this idea that if you face a pitcher through the third times of the order that they're going to hit him hard, which again, the numbers really didn't even support with Snell. So overall, I really can't even find a way to defend cash in this situation. I think overall, besides the fact that, you know, that is the move that he'd been doing all year. But let me go back actually, because I saw an interesting thing that doesn't even support cash because he let all four of his starting pitchers, I believe, faced batters for the third time in all World Series games. Yarbrough, I believe, didn't, didn't pitch as long into the game, but all of his other four starters coming up into that point had faced the Dodgers lineup for the third time. Not their whole order, but at least several batters for the third time, so that doesn't even support Cash in this argument. Overall, I just think it's really a bad move. Snell was going well, and the Dodgers... Like if if we're coming from the Dodgers perspective, they want to see a new pitcher in this Absolutely. game because they've struggled so mightily against Snell throughout the first five and the third innings. So yeah, it, it was just not a good move in general. No doubt, and you could tell there was a different tone when we came back from that commercial break. There were a lot of Dodgers fans there, majority Dodgers fans, especially in comparison to the Rays fans that showed up. And it was fairly quiet. And once the Dod- once the commercial break ended, you could hear these Dodgers fans. They almost brought life back to them, chanting loudly. The whole Dodgers dugout was high fiving, and then Mookie Betts sets the tone, hits the double down the left field line off of Nick Anderson, which obviously led to the two runs scoring on the wild pitch and then the fielder's choice that Betts was inevitably or eventually excuse me able to score on let's talk about Nick Anderson a little bit here and I think this was the worst decision that Kevin Cash could have made I understand that Nick Anderson is your guy all season long the 0.55 ERA in the regular season has been one of the best relievers over Major League Baseball in the last two years but he'd given up at least one run in his last six outings eight runs in nine innings total coming into that appearance and then I sent you the Devin Fink article, which brought up some very good points. He was talking about how the K rate was down and the walk rate was up. There was no defense, I feel like, to bring in Nick Anderson into that situation when you have so much bullpen depth, one of the best bullpens in Major League Baseball, if not the best, coming off of a day off in the middle of an inning here. I get Anderson is your guy usually, but there were so many other options in this case, and I really think that's what blew up this ballgame. Yeah, it was really interesting. I remember when you sent me that article, my response to that was how it was interesting that a team that relies so heavily on numbers was blatantly ignoring the numbers in this situation. We look at Nick Anderson's stats between the regular season and the postseason, and they are night and day. He had a .55 ERA, like you said, in the regular season, compared to a .552 ERA for the entire 2020 postseason. He only struck out nine hitters in the 14 and two-thirds innings in the postseason, compared to 26 and 16 in the third innings in the regular season. So he was obviously laboring. We don't know exactly what the details of his arm health at this point were. Uh, it didn't seem like he was having any arm trouble because I think if that was the case, then he would have been taken off the roster. But we don't know. Maybe he decided to fight through some stuff and try to continue pitching. But Cash just continually went back to Nick Anderson like he had all season. I mean, Anderson was his go-to guy when he was healthy. He obviously had a stint on the IL for part of the regular season. But the fact of the matter is 
uh, Cash just was held so steadfast in going to Anderson that it was almost like he had blinders on. No doubt. And I think something I've taken away from this is that whether you're playing the gut game, if that's the right way to put it, or the analytics game, there's not a hundred, there is not a hundred percent guaranteed chance this is going to work out no matter what. And that's, that was brought to me when I saw this tweet courtesy of Connor Kirkon on Twitter. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. And he was comparing Snell's game, game six, 2020 to Justin Verlander's game six performance in 2017's game six of the world series. And both of them, through five innings pitched, were at 69 pitches. Verlander had eight strikeouts, Snell had nine. Uh, both had given up at least one base runner, whether that was a hit or a walk. The score was one nothing Houston and one nothing Tampa Bay. And lineup positions 8, 9, and 1 were both due up. The result for Verlander, who was left in that game by a very analytical team in the Houston Astros, was two runs in that sixth inning, which would lead to a Houston Game 6 loss. So I feel like we have to remember here that both strategies work in their own ways, but we can't guarantee it's going to work out in any circumstance, whether you have the statistics or you're going with the gut in each case. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point you bring up. And I think if there's anything to learn from this, it's that, you know, like you said, we never know exactly what would have happened in that inning if they had left Snell in, that he could have blown up. And then, you know, Cash, we talked about beforehand, would have probably had to hear an earful from the analytics department about, hey, why didn't you take him out third time's the order? Uh, I, I think Cash had that leeway to make that decision. That's something we can talk about another day, whether the analytics department kind of had that discussion with him before the game and was saying, hey, you know, if Snell faces third time's the order, get him out of there. Again, I think that was more that was definitely Cash's decision, but I think maybe the fact that you know, he knew the analytics people were watching, and that is their front office, who is, you know, technically his boss, really, is those front office people. Uh, I think he that that probably, like you had talked to me beforehand about, probably weighed on his decision to take Snell out of the Absolutely game. Absolutely influenced it, yeah. Yeah, so I think, but, but then again, we don't know if he would have left him in if, if Snell would have continued to pitch that well, and I think maybe if he left him in a little too long, he would have been facing the same criticism, like, why didn't you take him out? This is what you had done the whole season. If you're a Rays fan and you see him not go with the plan that you've gone all season, then you might be a bit confused and you think, okay, are we pretty much throwing everything we've done all season out the table that's got us to this point? But again, the bottom line is we never know quite what would have happened. And it didn't work out for the Rays this postseason and give credit to the Dodgers for fighting back all year and being the best team in 2020. Unfortunately, now transitioning there. 2020 success was a little bit clouded uh, by Justin Turner's actions post game. We saw him lifted in the seventh inning uh, due to a positive coronavirus test, which we learned about later. And then, as we're watching the post game ceremony, who do we see back out on the field but Justin Turner sitting crisscross applesauce, smirking in the <laughs> middle of the team picture? Uh, not a great look for baseball, not a great look for the rest of America as they watch the World Series celebration as the leader of the top team in Major League Baseball, who's supposed to be, at that point, considerably could have been the face of baseball in that moment, is sitting in close proximity with lots of teammates after testing positive for this virus, clearly showing no regard for those around him and pretty much thinking in no other way that can be described but a selfish manner. Max, I want to get your thoughts on kind of how does this happen in the first place? How does Turner get back out on the field? And secondly, you know, did Turner 
kind of deserved to be allowed back out onto the field. He did win the World Series after all, coming from that other perspective. He's a World Series champ. Let him kind of have his moment. What are your thoughts on both of those takes? To answer the latter first, I understand. It's tough. Justin Turner is the second longest tenured Dodger, if I'm correct, besides Clayton Kershaw. He is a huge part of that team, a leader. But come on, man. You have the rest of your life to take a picture with that World Series trophy and remember back on this and celebrate with your teammates. Again, you don't get that moment on the field again. But I don't mean to get dark here. But think about all of the families that couldn't see their family members before they died because of COVID-19, all of the students that haven't had a graduation, all of the families that had to cancel their weddings. Why should Justin Turner be allowed to go out there in that moment and celebrate that World Series if no one else in the world can't, especially knowing a week from now if Justin Turner's healthy, can go find that World Series trophy, take a picture with his buddy Cody Ballinger if he wanted to. The other thing for me too is I do think that everyone is to everyone in this situation is here to blame Major League Baseball, the Dodgers, Justin Turner. I don't understand how the security could have let him go by and get through this. I understand that MLB said he emphatically refused to comply, almost putting the blame only on Turner. And don't get me wrong, Turner is 100% here to blame. But it is also Major League Baseball's responsibility that he doesn't get back out onto that field and potentially transfer or transmit a potentially deadly disease to not only players, but managers like Dave Roberts, who's a cancer survivor, Kenley Jansen has heart issues, media members who are definitely over the age of 50, family members, little kids, everyone is at risk in this situation. And MLB had the knowledge that he was positive, two positive tests, and still let him go on the field. It's a really bad situation, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. You couldn't have really said it better in that scenario. The one thing that I disagreed with you on, and that was just coming from kind of an MLB security perspective, is the is the photo or the clip that you want aired all over ESPN, the world news probably, I mean, this was on the world news on NBC, um, is the video that you want on there, the security dragging Justin Turner off the field, because that's what it sounded like it would have came to at that point. We said, like you said, the report said he described that he emphatically refused to comply, which basically to us, as we talked about, sounded like them saying, hey, Justin, you need to get off the field. Don't be here. And he basically yelled no multiple times. (laughs) It's only what I can conjecture happened in this scenario. And they kind of just said, "Okay, we're not going to get physical in this in this case. For one, put our security members at risk of contracting the virus because when you're dealing with someone and handling them and and forcefully taking them off the field, you are likely going to contract the virus if you're holding him for a long period of time. And he's a major league athlete. I'm sure it wouldn't be that easy for them to get him off the field versus some Joe Schmo running on the field like, like they normally have to deal with when they're removing people from the premises. But uh, yeah, I'm sure one wouldn't, wouldn't have been easy to get them off the field and they were concerned about potentially their own security members contracting the virus. And two, that image thing, if you're Major League Baseball, I think it looks bad, like you said, that they allowed him to go back on the field, but I think it would have looked a lot worse if they had forcefully removed him from the field. It would have it put their own people at risk and it would not have been a good image for Major League Baseball, even worse than the one that they already had with him on the field. That's true, but I think it's going to look, a, or not going to, it could look a lot worse if someone tests positive and potentially passes away with them will be having the knowledge that he had the disease. And two, back to the security guard thing, that's their job. I mean, this is a little extreme here, but if a player came out with a weapon, 
The security guards know that they could potentially get hurt or pass away if he had a gun per se or if he had a knife. And I'm not saying just a Turner in this case, but if any player did that. This is the same exact thing in my situation. He's carrying a deadly disease. At the very least, they can pull him off the field. Uh, if they, It would be the same exact circumstance here with the weapon. It's their job, and I can almost guarantee you they wouldn't have a security guard working who is potentially could be hurt from COVID-19 in this situation. And number three, I think you have to think about the hundreds of people that are on the baseball field right now, and Justin Turner is one person. Again, it would not be a good image. I also don't think that they would have to tackle him or anything like that. But I think the potential risk of someone dying from this would be far worse than the idea of them grabbing his shoulder and having to walk him off the field. It would not be a good look, but you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't in this situation You're for Rob Manfred. You're either going to look bad for letting him go on the field with COVID or you're going to look bad for dragging him off the field. So why don't you choose the safest choice in this circumstance? That's my opinion on it. Yeah, I think you make an excellent rebuttal and you're sort of drawing me over to your side a little bit. I do think now that I'm thinking about this a little bit, you're right. That is the security's job in this situation. It's always good to have these discussions because sometimes it's open up the other side's eyes. And I think I kind of agree with what you're saying in that, you know, the the deadly weapon isn't the most, uh, you know, extreme circumstance. It's it's a bit extreme, like you said, but it's also kind of a good comparison because, you know, that is their job. Their security people, they, sh- they, they know that that's part of their job is to put themselves in harm's way. So I think for baseball, it probably would have, would have been a better look to rather have them be in harm's way than the whole Dodgers roster that was in the middle of the field at that point. Yeah, but yeah, no, it's, it's not a great look. Go ahead. And I also was going to say, too, I mean, this might be questionable, but I feel like in that case, Rob Manfred ordering for him to be taken off the field would almost be a better look for Major League Baseball in a year that was full of negative publicity just because of the fact that he has COVID-19 and instead of making this decision of almost being passive in my opinion right I think they did the minimum if you can even consider this the minimum and instead you know showing your authority and pulling him off the field even if this is Justin Turner Mookie Betts or any other player in this circumstance even if it was Edwin Rios I'd say they would have to pull him off the field. Uh, moving on now into the 2021 season, Max, we progress into the offseason and we're still having a ton of action. Already the first day after the World Series, we hear two major, major managerial signings or in the days after. I know La Russa was announced, I think it was the day after the World Series, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, they had those discussions right after the World Series almost immediately ended. I know A.J. Hinch with the Detroit Tigers got his phone call almost a half about a half yeah. hour exactly after the World Series was over because his ban from baseball was finally lifted after that cheating scandal with the Astros. Um, good for him for getting a job. He's a great baseball guy. We'll talk about him a little bit. But first, I want to get your thoughts on the Tony LaRusa signing, a controversial signing with the Chicago White Sox, the 76-year-old manager, one of the legends in the game, third most wins in all time of baseball. Um uh, it's it's going to be an exciting one. He's definitely a huge public figure for baseball signing with the White Sox. Yeah, and I think when you look at it like that, it definitely could work. And I, I, I don't want to say this managerial decision and choice will not work out at all because, as you said, Tony LaRusse is a Hall of Famer. But I do not like this for the White Sox for so many reasons. The more I read on it, the more upset it makes me just because of how much promise this White Sox team has. Just right off the bat, we talk about analytics. We have talked about analytics this entire show, basically, with Kevin Cash. Is Tony La Russa going to be okay to that? I mean, you got to imagine him signing and agreeing to this deal. He would have talked to the White Sox front office and 
uh, front office staff and maybe establish some sort of agreement. But is this going to be a problem going forward? Number two, Tony La Russa has said several times in the past year that he is not a fan of players showing emotion and you know showing up teams, if that's how you should put it. And he has Tim Anderson on his team, who obviously notoriously or famously, however you want to put it, threw his bat towards the third base dugout in celebration of a home run off Brad Keller. You had Eloy Jimenez, who basically doesn't button the top half of his jersey. So much flair, so much swagger, but also so much controversy to anyone who looks at baseball more as the respectable sport where, you know, you wear the belt, the managers wear the ties, and so forth like that. And number three, this one, I don't want to get political here, but and I'm, and I, whether you agree with it or not, it is a fact that Tim Anderson is very high up on the Players Alliance, which is a support group for uh, African Americans and social rights and so forth. And Tony Russa spoke out against it in the past, which could c- potentially cause some friction as well. And then another one, he's 76 years old and we have COVID-19 running around. Is he going to be safe out there on a baseball field with a bunch of players who are 20 to 30 years old who could potentially be carrying this disease as well? There's so many reasons why this doesn't make sense for such a young White Sox team that, in my opinion, would benefit so much more from a young manager who could connect to them more. Well, uh, based on that, Max, I'm going to try and guess that you're not a huge fan of this signing if i'm guessing correctly but but no in in all seriousness (laughs) uh you bring about a slew of different points uh kind of debunking this signing and and basically bringing that it's not a great one i'm gonna touch on a couple of them and try to offer a little rebuttal of my own i'm not gonna touch on the racial stuff because i know that i can't speak for any either anderson or larusa in that scenario but um, I will touch on the analytics and the uh, kind of swagger thing that you touch on with Larusa. First off, I'll touch on the swagger thing by saying, you know, Larusa ha- had so many players Ricky play Henderson, for him throughout did, his yeah. career. Ricky, Hander- Ricky Henderson, of, of course, of first is the major one. If he could deal with the antics of, of Henderson, then I think he can deal with the antics of any of the players on the White Sox. And uh, to add to that, over to the analytics side, uh, Larusa was one of the first managers who really you know, accepted analytics and started really delving into the numbers in the game to help him become a more successful manager than he already was. Uh, I think he was a huge, uh, huge proponent of using analytics in the game when uh, being one of the first managers who really began to use the numbers a lot. So I think maybe he won't be a cash type of manager, but I think he'll kind of swing the lever back towards the middle of the spectrum of the old school manager versus the new school manager, which I think will be a refreshing thing in today's game to not have, you know, maybe everything be laid out by computer, so to speak, like like some of the managers are nowadays, like Kevin Cash. I think Larusa would definitely, in the Snell scenario, have kept him in the game just being that old school type of manager, which ultimately could have been the correct move, like a lot of people have been saying. So I think having a manager with that much experience combined with the analytics will be a great uh, match for the White Sox. All right. I stand corrected on the analytics part. I get that. And hopefully that'll work out. And as I said, too, you got to imagine him signing there. They had to come, had they had to have come to some sort of agreement in that case. But to the, the swagger part of it, I, he spoke up against in the past, and I think the Ricky Henderson antics and so forth and all those players from the 70s, 80s, and 90s is a little bit different because at that time, 
that was accepted. You know, Ricky Henderson doing that, he never got thrown at the head for doing that. What Tim Anderson and a lot of these other players are doing is an extra step up. And I'm not saying LaRusa is going to stand against it because I'm not him. I don't know. And in his press conference, he said he's starting to realize that he's okay with it now as long as it's not against the pitcher and more of in celebration of the game. But I do think his philosophies are a little bit more older and the fact that I don't think he'll be able to connect as well with these younger players may not be the best fit for them versus look at all the other managers that have been or that have been being signed to these teams you got like a Kevin Cash who's incredibly young a Rocco Baldelli who's incredibly young with the Minnesota Twi- with the Minnesota Twins I think those guys fit so much better more with these younger players who also have played uh, at a more recent time and that's why I just I don't see it being the best fit possible and the fact that AJ Hinch vocally has said that he would wanted to go to the Chicago White Sox, I think is a huge miss because I think he's such a better fit than Tony the Russa is. Yeah, I do agree with you that Hinch would have been the manager if I was a front office personnel, uh, a front office leader rather, would have been the guy that I would have tried to go after just because I think he did such a nice job with the Houston Astros. Obviously, the main thing we can talk about with Hinch is the cheating scandal. It sounded like he really wasn't a part of that, but obviously he was the leader of the team and that all happened underneath him, so the responsibility of it obviously falls on him. Uh, but going back to his managing, I think he was is such a great fit for the Detroit Tigers and would have also been oh, a nice is, fit yeah. for the White Sox as well just because he had the experience that we saw him bring the Astros up from and, and be the leader of the Astros as they turned over from a bottom team to a contender. He can do the same thing with both of these teams because he's been through it before. He has that experience of doing that. So I think that's why he would have been a great fit for both teams. I think he would have been a better fit with the White Sox potentially just because they're so much closer. Uh, They could have used him just because I think he's, you know, he's the better manager of the two. I can't say that really. I can't talk down on Tony La Russa just because he's won the third most games of any manager in the history of Major League Baseball. So it's hard to say that, but I think maybe Hinch in today's game, just because he's done a little bit more recently, is the better manager of the two. That's a whole other discussion we can have again, but I think, uh, you know, Hinch would have been the better fit for the White Sox just because he's done it a little bit more recently. He's He's dealt with more current events in the game, and you know, uh, you could argue against this though, because you know, you might say that they don't want to bring in a guy to a contend, a team that's already contending like the White Sox with all the baggage that comes with Hinch potentially coming from that cheating scandal. So maybe they wanted La Russa because, you know, there was a little bit, <laughs> I, I won't say less controversy because I think maybe there's even potentially more controversy with La Russa just because he was such an uh, kind of an odd candidate for the job that people didn't think would be a manager. But, you know, I think Hinch uh, would have been a more you know, mainstream approach for the White yeah. Sox to take in a more obvious candidate. So that might have been the the better pick for them because of that. No, I think that's a brilliant point. I, I think, you know, you can't sleep on the resume of Tony La Russa. But ever since he's left the game in 2011, a lot has changed. I mean, even look, instant replay was not put into play when he retired. So there is so much going on here in this situation. And you're right, A.J. Hinch does have a lot of baggage on him, but I still think at the end of the day, he fits the personality of this club a lot more because I do think this 2021 Chicago White Sox team, in a way, is very similar to the 2017-2018 Houston Astros, uh, without the cheating, of course. Uh, But, you know, another thing that I saw, too, is that the White Sox front office, one, isn't completely satisfied with this move and then it was mainly off of the owner Jerry Reinsdorf for the Chicago White Sox who 
apparently allegedly regretted the decision of letting Hawk Hollerson fire Tony La Russa back in the 80s and wanted to make up for it, I guess, in this case. And I'm hoping that's not what the basis of the decision was. Because if that's what you're basing it off of, I think that is a huge mistake in this circumstance. And you got to hope that Reinsdorf saw more from La Russa than just that to just kind of fill the void of that you know, regret he felt in the past. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point you bring up, and I think it's something that we've got to talk about because I personally do believe that that was a factor in this scenario because it's such an outlandish choice, I feel like, just because yeah. LaRusso's been out of the game for so long that it's so odd that you almost have to consider that that was one of the factors, and I believe that that was one of the factors. Unfortunately, if you're a White Sox fan, you're thinking, okay, we did this because the own, our owner felt bad about this. So you're thinking, okay, maybe they, the rest of the front office doesn't even agree with this de- decision and we could have had a better candidate in A.J. Hinch, who they had also discussed as a potential option for the managerial, sp- managerial spot. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's a great point that you bring that up because it's something that definitely has to be talked about and probably was one of the factors in the decision. No doubt. I mean, the irony of it is that He's trying to make up for a mistake by potentially making another mistake. It could be a mistake to bring him back here. So we'll see what happens. And for his sake, you got to hope it works out. For the White Sox sake, you have to hope it works out. They're one of my favorite teams up and coming here into the decade starting in 2020. I'm so excited for them. It would be a shame if this had a negative impact on them. They're still a great team. Hopefully there's no friction in the clubhouse and hopefully they can continue to play the game that they showed us they could in 2020 and Tony Russa can get another ring. Yeah, absolutely. That's what you got to hope if you're a White Sox fan because you lost your other managerial candidate, A.J. Hinch, to another team in their own division in the American League Central in the Detroit Tigers. And I think if you're a Tigers fan, you've got to be elated that A.J. Hinch ended up with your team because of, like I said earlier, the fact that Hinch has experience turning non-contenders into contenders. Uh, I think the, the Tigers are that exact case. They were one of the worst teams in baseball this past season. Um, and I think, you know, if you're A.J. Hinch, you look at the options that you have around you, it's kind of similar to that Astros case when he took over their team uh, back in the early 2010s. And uh, we look at, they have, they have a nice young core of players kind of on the cusp of the major leagues. We saw uh, Scooble and uh, Mize kind of join the rotation for parts this year, albeit with unsuccessful results really uh both of them didn't pitch very well yep exactly and uh they they made it to the major leagues they got some experience uh they have some nice other young players in candelario and castro also in the major leagues currently and they have a couple other guys and who are prospects they're promising guys in their minor league system kind of working their way up to the major leagues and i think hinch is a perfect candidate to kind of turn them over from a non-contender into their contention hopefully in the near future if you're a tigers fan no doubt you got to be incredibly excited and i think that's a trend we're starting to see we saw it with the white Sox. obviously they are finally coming up that core is starting to come together and they bring in a new manager tigers are doing it a little bit earlier but that seems to be a trend here you have a guy carry up you know those down years where you have a bunch of veterans just trying to stay in the game and then once you start to call those guys up you want a new core that grows together and that's the only blemish i think about this white suck situation ryan is the fact that they couldn't have tony la Russa or whoever that manager was going to be last year kind of because that was a huge stepping point in their progression into the team they're going to be but hopefully there is nothing 
you know, that's interrupted about Larusa coming in a year late, in my opinion. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting for sure. And the AL Central is going to be an interesting division in the future. I mean, we'll move over to a little bit of the non-tender side of things here. In the AL Central, there was another huge move where Brad Hand, the elite closer for the Indians, was non-tendered. They could have offered him a guaranteed $10 million contract to hold him for the next season and continue to be their closer, presumably, unless they signed someone else, which probably wouldn't have been very likely anyways. But instead, he enters a market with a lot of other uh, relievers on the high end of things in Liam Hendricks, Trevor Rosenthal, among other guys. And uh, I think if you're the Indians, the main point of non-tendering hand is that you feel like you can get another guy on that level for less. Hopefully, if you're an Indians fan, you're hoping that you'll have another guy, Rosenthal, Hendricks, or maybe even hand back for less uh, to fill that closer role. Yeah, and if you're blaming the Indians for non-tendering him and DFAing him, just remember that all 29 other teams had an opportunity to get him as he was put on waivers, and no one picked him up because of that $10 million contract. So obviously you could see that major league organizations don't value him at the $10 million margin, but he had, he is a huge impact guy, lots of experiences, put up a sub-3 ERA for the last handful of seasons now, a former All-Star as well. Uh, I think this could really benefit a team that needs a solidified piece in the bullpen, particularly the Phillies, for example, who we know notoriously have had one of the worst bullpens in Major League Baseball the last three or four years. I don't think it's the worst idea to non-tender him, especially in the environment we're in where MLB teams are struggling financially. But then again, you could still bring Brad Hand back for a cheaper deal if he wants to come back too. So again, I think people are questioning this decision a lot from the Indians, just looking at the numbers and the stat line for Brad Hand. But it makes sense financially to me. Yeah, if you're Brad Hand, you're thinking, <clears throat> what more do I have to do to get $10 million, which isn't even really a steep contract for a high-level closer. We've seen other guys get deals at that level per year uh, or for multi-years even. Uh, we look at Brad Hand was arguably the best closer in baseball last year. You could argue Liam Hendricks, who's also on the market, uh, was a better performer last season. But Hand had a 2 05 ERA struck out 29 batters through 22 innings at a .77 whip, which is really a minuscule number for uh, any pitcher. But uh, you're thinking, what more do I have to do to get 10 million dollars? Because if in a non-COVID scenario, that is a fine deal for a lever of his caliber. Uh, but you have to look also to the open market with guys like Rosenthal and Hendricks, who really Hendricks out performed hand in his own league last year. Hendricks winning the reliever of the year award with a 1.78 ERA with 37 strikeouts through 25 and a third innings with a 0.67 whip. Uh, all three of those numbers besting hand uh, this season, but uh, it's going to be a tough market. I think that's what we're kind of seeing from these non-tenders. Uh, we'll talk about some of the other non-tender moves in a second, but uh, the hand one kind of just magnifies the fact that, you know, players aren't going to be making as much this year in general as they did last year because teams are concerned in the post-COVID world. And right now we're in the current COVID world, but we got to hope going into next year that will mean a post-COVID world and there will be fans. But teams are still going to be feeling the repercussions of no fans this past season and not getting that same revenue. And the players are going to be feeling the repercussions of it as well. And we're going to see this 
unfortunately, likely this free agent season, players are just not going to be getting those same deals that they did in a pre-COVID world. No doubt. And something to think and keep an eye on, too, is just how strong this relief core is in the free agent market right now. All three of those guys you mentioned, Rosenthal, Hand, and Hendricks, were Rolades relief or uh, Rolades Rivera and Hoffman reliever finalists of the year uh, this current year. So it's going to be an interesting market to see how it goes. And for every contending team, you cannot have enough bullpen arms. So all those guys will definitely be there. Will be a bidding war for sure, I'd imagine. Uh, but you're right. I don't think we're going to see anything upwards more than 12 million for any of these guys per year, just because of the unfortunate environment right now. Yeah, and if you're looking, like you said, it's such a strong relief core heading into this offseason. Let me just go down the saves leaders of this past season. Brad Hand, 16, free agent. Liam Hendricks, 14, free agent. Josh Hader, 13, not a free agent. Alex Colomay, 12, free agent. Brandon Kinsler, 12, free agent. Ryan Presley, not a free agent. Kenley Jansen, not a free agent. Mark Melanson, free agent. Trevor Rosenthal, free agent. So how many of those top closers are available for teams? So no wonder why the Indians looking back at this deal did not keep Brad Hand just because there's so many other really good closing options available that they feel that they can either get a, another guy of that caliber, like I said earlier, for less, or even kind of a guy who's not quite at that level but can kind of still get the job done and they can spend some money at other areas where they so desperately need help such as the outfield which was pretty much stagnant offensively this past season so I think if you're an Indians fan I wouldn't be too upset about this move to not bring Hand back uh, as of now anyways like we said we can they can always bring him back later in the offseason but uh, you got to be happy that they're not kind of going out of the way to spend too much money at a position where you know historically teams haven't poured a lot of money into so um Another major move, kind of moving on, we won't stick on these relievers and this hand deals for too much longer, but uh, another non-tender thing, which I think is worth noting for the for a team that made the World Series, we'll go for two guys here, um, one of which you know so well, Mike Zanino <laughs> and Charlie Morton. I know Zanino is not a huge uh He's huge, huge to us, okay? Agents. He's huge yes, to us, of, and he's worth talking about. Of, of course, uh, but, you know, it, it's worth talking about him also in, in baseball terms because, you know, he was the starting catcher on a World Series, um, a team that participated in the World Series in the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, along with Charlie Morton. So uh, I, I want to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, do you think the, these would be guys that the Rays would consider, you know, giving deals to of, of uh, less money next year? Or uh, do you think that, you know these guys are going to kind of look to some other locations to continue their careers. Zanino, I'm not quite sure just because, again, he's fairly cheap, especially regarding a catcher and his defensive capabilities. The offense has been a question mark the last couple of years, ever since 2017 where he hit 251, 20-plus bombs. It hasn't been the same guy, and the defense will always be there, but I definitely think he'll be somewhat of a bargain for them if they need him to, and they potentially non-tenured him because they thought that the contract was going to be too expensive and they could get him for a cheaper deal and bring him back. Morton is interesting. With Morton, obviously, there was the storyline in the World Series that he could retire. I don't think that's going to happen now just because he's not... Or actually, it could still happen. But I could see them bringing him back for a cheaper deal. In fact, I really could because he's from that area in Florida. He wanted to go there in free agency. He likes the East Coast. I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back. I think the majority of this decision was based off the fact that the Rays 
thought they could get the same value of him for a cheaper deal and think that they can come to an agreement with him. I'm not guaranteeing it, but I wouldn't be surprised if he came back. With Zanino, that's just a question mark. Obviously, losing Michael Perez on waivers to the Pirates hurts too, so now they don't have any of their catchers from major, from their Major League Baseball level on their roster right now. But again, I think they're smart enough where they could get a guy like Mike Zanino for potentially cheaper or at the same value if they wanted to with potentially more control at a younger age or so forth. So for that one, it's a wild card for me. Yeah, there's no doubt that the Rays made the right move in, you know, letting Morton hit free agency because of the fact that, you know, we do have a pretty, a fairly deep starting rotation market out there where you can find some other options, definitely for less than what Morton was due to make. But if you're a contender and, and if you're Charlie Morton, you know, there's a lot of teams out there, even on the East Coast, which you said he's more familiar with, that he could go to. I think a team no, like... No, yeah. The Atlanta Braves would be a great fit who's in desperate need of starting pitcher. Take a flyer on him for a one-year deal. We'll get into our predictions a little bit on free agency in the next show, uh, which I know you guys will be looking forward to hear some stuff on that because that's, you know, that'll be consuming our our uh, baseball world for the next few months. So we'll get into that. But I think the Braves would be a great fit for a guy like Morton. I think uh, really any contender uh, would be a great fit for him. But uh, the Braves just kind of strike me as a team that could really use a guy like him, a veteran starting pitcher, a guy who's logged innings in a competitive division the past few years. He's got that veteran leadership. He's got that postseason experience, big game Chuck, they call him, (laughs) because of his success in game sevens in the past in the postseason. But I think he's. there's no reason for, for Charlie Morton to retire this next year unless he just felt like he was done and felt confident what he'd what he'd accomplish in the game but I think uh, he's definitely got the stuff to continue pitching obviously he didn't have the great results this year that he had the past two seasons the past two seasons if you don't remember in 18 and 19 uh, this was his record 18 15 and 3 with the Houston Astros with the 3-1-3 ERA and the next year in 2019 with the Rays he was even better, 16 and six with a 3.05, 33 games started, 194 and two thirds innings pitched, and he struck out a whopping 240 batters. So uh, this year he didn't have that same success, two and two with a 4.74 ERA in the shortened season. He was banged up a little bit on the IL for part of the year, and I think he really didn't build up to his full strength until later in the postseason. We That's saw him have that say, fantastic. Yeah. He he had that fantastic start. Um, in the World Series and and also in the in a, in a couple of the rounds beforehand, he pitched very well. Uh, but I think he's definitely got a lot left in the tank and could really benefit some high-level contender uh, on the East Coast. And I think, like I said, the Braves would be a great fit. Yeah, to reiterate your point here, he was a top three Cy Young guy back in 2019. And I don't know the numbers, but I would imagine if you take his ERA from the postseason and plop that right inside of the ERA in the regular season, it's definitely going to be a much better number to look at in that case. Remember, it's hard to judge players here in the 60-game season because they only played 60 games, and for Morton's case, less because he was hurt. Uh, So... That's what's going to be so interesting about this free agency market, Ryan, is how players are going to be valued. And if you're going to take a jump on a guy who had a fantastic 2000 and, uh, 2020, maybe like a Trevor Bauer who you know looked like the best pitcher on the planet this year, and don't get me wrong, has put up good numbers in the past, but this was a different Trevor Bauer this year, especially with the sub-2 ERA. How much will that impact his value you know, compared to a guy who maybe was worse in a small sample size here in 2020? Yeah, I think it's there's definitely a lot of stuff you have to talk about. Um, 
I'm going to ask you now, was there any other non-tender candidates that really, or or guys that were non-tendered that really stuck out to you? I know there was a few other minor moves that teams kind of, you know, guys that were due to make contracts that teams obviously felt like they could get better value for that position out on the market. But yeah, I'll I'll just ask you, what were some guys or, or maybe one player that stuck out to you in the past few days that, you know, was going to be hitting the free agent market? A guy I like who definitely will be, cheap, definitely will be cheaper than the other guys uh, that we discussed um, is going to be Tommy Canely, who was just non-tendered just a few hours ago as we speak here on Saturday on Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody. But uh, Tommy Canely, <laughs> despite the injuries from this past season, uh, has been a very solid relief pitcher in the last few years or so, going back to even his days with the White Sox. And again, I don't blame the Yankees for passing up on him just because it's expensive, he's not healthy, and they have other options. But for a team right now that needs a good piece of the back end, hey, look at those Phillies right there. That's a nice, solid piece that you can go in there that has a good track record if he's healthy and I think could bolster a pen and he's a great personality good for the clubhouse as well another one that I'm not surprised by but disappointed me a little bit is Colton Wong Uh, the contract was definitely a little too much for his value I'd say but he's been with the Cardinals for such a long time it'd be a shame to see him go and I'm not putting away the fact that they could re-sign him to a cheaper deal but he's another guy who's always been a great defender always consistent uh, will play deep into the season for you that I think could really benefit a team as well yeah, I think uh, you, you make a great point there about Wong's value, especially defensively. I I think he kind of gets overlooked in a position that really isn't that deep at second base, so it's kind of surprising that he's a bit overlooked. But I think, again, it kind of goes back to the fact that, you know, Wong was due to make over $10 million Absolutely. this upcoming season. So at a position like second base where, you know, Wong wasn't a great uh, – he wasn't great at the plate this past season – uh, the statistics weren't that high for him, but his defense is what kind of makes him a marquee player at the position. But defense, unfortunately, isn't always going to get you that high pay that a player that, say, hits you know 25 bombs at the second base position would get. Wong, to go through his numbers here, if for those of you that aren't, aren't aware, he batted 265 this year, which isn't bad. Only had one home run, though, and 16 RBIs. Stole five bags with a 675 OPS. The 675 OPS, I think, was killer there. He's a career 717 OPS guy. So, again, a light hitter at a position with an, where there's not a whole lot of power anyways, but he's a defense-first guy. I think the Cardinals, a team that, you know, their lineup was the issue this past season. Might be looking for someone with a little more pop at that second base position like they got from Matt Carpenter a few years ago. I know he played some second base and hit hit for a lot of power there. I think they could use someone, you know, like that at second base over a guy like Colton Wong, who's defense first, because the rest of their positions around the field are already say, yeah. centered around defense. They already have a lot of really good defenders. I think that they're going to be looking for more, you know, pop in the offense coming into this 2021 season. No doubt. I was going to say the exact same thing. Defense is not a problem for them. So they could afford for an offensive plus second baseman as long as you can get replacement level defense from him. And it's not taking away from the fact that, or it's not anything less than, uh, but no. Yeah. And I think if you're the Cardinals right now, Again, offense has been the issue the last two years. We're able to get to the National League Championship Series, but it was completely exposed in that series against the Nationals in 2018. They want to make it deep. They're going to have to hit, and they're going to have to make a move. And it's ironic enough that they gave up both Marcelo Zuna and Luke Voigt in the last few years, and both of those guys last year were 
potential MVP candidates. Azuna more and, than Voight, and, but both were really good. And Randy Arozarena also. Oh, yeah, also, how am I forgetting about world, Randy? Exactly. In the World Series, I mean, how, how tough is that for uh, – for Cardinals fans, as I say, as a Red Sox fan, as Mookie Betts tears up the field in the World <laughs> Series. So, uh, who was I feeling I, Red Sox say, fans or Cardinals fans? Uh, I don't know. I, I can't speak for the rest of Red Sox fans because, unlike the rest of Red Sox nation, you know, I kind of didn't. <clears throat> I didn't really feel as you know as bad in the World Series watching Betts because. As much as I am a Red Sox fan, I'm also a, a baseball fan, a Major League Baseball fan in general, so I enjoy watching all teams. So, you know, while I am a homer when I when I watch my team and enjoy to see the Red Sox do well, I was happy for Betts to do well with the Dodgers as well. And I think in, in the future going on in the, in the long run for the Red Sox, especially, you know, as we said earlier, this post-pandemic world, not having Betts locked up into this long contract where he's going to be paid a lot of money is going to give them a lot more leeway moving forward into free agency when they might not be contenders next year i think they will we'll have this discussion some other time but i think it gives you've convinced me (laughs) i'm not saying it's guaranteed but it wouldn't surprise me anymore while i think it will shock the entire baseball world if it happens if that yeah we'll we'll talk about that on a future show but now that we've had that lodged in your mind you're gonna you're gonna remember and, and be waiting for us to talk about the red sox contending next year but yeah going back to uh to to the to to the um the cardinals giving up these bats i think they're gonna be more motivated than ever to get more offense to do a lineup that just kind of wallowed against the padres after that first game uh in that in that series against san diego so well, that kind of that kind of sums up the non-tendered stuff. Some uh, and some other news for we talk about guys that get non-tendered. Uh, how about giving Anthony Rizzo some credit? He got he got a uh, his contract option for 2021 exercise today. He's going to be getting paid 16 and a half million next year, and good for him. He's the heart and soul of a Cubs team that you know is is maybe past its prime now, but that's going to be building towards the future. And if you're going to build around anybody, it's going to be Anthony Rizzo. No doubt. And I'm not going to say this means that they're pushing for it, but there's been a lot of question on what is the Cubs' window now? What is their plans going into 2021? And I'll tell you what, this at least doesn't say that they're going to start a rebuild or so forth because keeping Rizzo is that heart and soul of that team, is a guy who you're spending a lot of money on, and I think it's a good decision just because I think it would be even more heartbreaking to lose Rizzo almost than it would be Chris Bryant because he's been there the whole way and such a great personality in that clubhouse. Alrighty, that's going to wrap up our show today. We thank you guys so much for tuning in on your podcast app, whether it be Spotify or Apple. For Ryan Medeiros, I'm Max Tanzer. Make sure to continue to tune in and to subscribe to our podcast as we'll be continuing to keep you guys updated with all the Major League Baseball news you need to know during this offseason. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll catch you next time.